Paul opens Philippians chapter 3 saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Though the use of this word finally indicates that Paul is not closing his, his writing, closing his letter, but really it indicates that he's going to transition to new material. Paul wants the reader to understand that the idea he's about to unpack in the rest of chapter 3 is absolutely related to the essence of Christian joy and our ability to rejoice as believers regardless of whatever situation or circumstance we might come to find ourselves facing. And we noted in last Sunday's Bible study that the Scriptures present joy as being so much more than mere happiness. Joy is something mysterious. It's radical. It's otherworldly. To the world, joy, it's foreign. It's supernatural. The truth is, is that the Bible presents joy as being the byproduct of two amazing things. Joy is the byproduct of God's grace coupled with the indwelling of God's Spirit. Joy, as we come to understand it, is therefore something that transcends the emotional, or for that matter, the physical, because it springs forth from the spiritual. Because joy manifests through a, a working of God's Spirit, yielded by the grace afforded to you in Christ Jesus, it's then only logical, isn't it? That the greatest deterrent to joy would be anything that either directly or indirectly undercuts the power of grace or your dependency on the Holy Spirit. If your joy is based in grace and the Spirit, anything that undermines grace or the Spirit becomes a detriment to joy. It robs you of joy, which is why the remainder of Philippians chapter 3, Paul deals specifically with the issue of legalism, something that attacks grace and undermines our dependency on the Holy Spirit. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Though Paul has spent the last two chapters discussing the joy we have in Jesus, a joy independent of circumstance, now the substance and, and even the tone of his letter, it takes a very weird dramatic, kind of drastic turn. Paul goes from the admonishment, brethren, rejoice in the Lord, to now the stark warning to beware of dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. It's a weird transition. It's a bizarre shift in theme. And one of the reasons it's so almost out of place is that it kind of lacks a context. Like Paul makes this shift without, without providing us any background, any, any kind of context to, to make sense. And yet, I want to share a theory. I absolutely believe that the Philippians knew exactly what Paul was discussing when he makes this shift, because they had the context. And why? Because Paul had already preached to the Philippians the very message he's going to reiterate in the chapter. They had heard this before. Notice the transition 
that, that we're given at the end of verse 1. Paul, Paul writes, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Now, now what does he mean by that? This word tedious, it means slothful or lazy. The word safe in the Greek can be translated as firm or certain. In a sense, Paul is saying that while some may see his repeating of content now in print that he's already delivered in person to be maybe lazy writing. Like, Paul, can't you come up with some new material? We've heard this before. Paul was instead confident that the Philippian believers wouldn't mind because they understood the importance of the subject that he was going to be referring to. With that context, read it again. For me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious, it's not lazy. But for you, it's certain, it's safe, it's firm. Now, in the first century church, something absolutely revolutionary was taking place. The gospel of Jesus was bridging a racial chasm that had existed between Jews and Gentiles. For the first time, these two groups were coming together as one in the worship of God. It was incredible. A true working of God's grace and only made possible through the individual indwelling of the Spirit of God. While Christianity began in Jewish-only communities, started in Jerusalem, the disciples were Jewish. Jesus was a Jew himself. Within the first 30 years or so, a major shift occurred. While Christianity began as being Jewish, it became predominantly Gentile. In 30 years, thanks in part, mainly to the missionary endeavors of Paul traveling throughout the Roman Empire. Case in point, this very church in Philippi, the city of Philippi, it was a Roman colony, meaning that the church itself was largely, vastly, the majority Gentile with a very minimal Jewish presence. Sadly, though, this dynamic, this blending together of these two different cultures, Gentile and and Hebrew, it did come with its fair share of challenges, issues. Most notably was the insistence of some of the Hebrew brethren who would become known as Judaizers, that these Gentile believers also add to adhere to certain Jewish customs, specifically circumcision in order to be a Christian. This was the hot-button topic. Now, while it's true that circumcision is not exactly uh, something we debate a lot about in the church today, it was in the first century, man, it was controversial. And yet, no, while we don't debate about legalism, about circumcision, the same type of legalistic tendencies that circumcision in that culture represented, they exist today. As a matter of fact, they're very prevalent. Because the topic of circumcision, as it relates to legalism, isn't relevant to us, I want, before we go any further in our our study here, I want to expand your understanding, or maybe even just kind of qualify your understanding of legalism using just two very simple sentences, right? If you've been around Calvary 316 for any period of time, you've probably heard me mention these before because I really do think that it sums up legalism. Instead of the gospel, so what is the gospel of Jesus? The gospel of Jesus, is it's very simple. It's grace 
period. You don't need anything else. It's the grace demonstrated to you in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. That's enough. The gospel says it's grace and grace alone. However, you'll know that you're hearing someone peddling legalism, and therefore, by the way, a false gospel, if you hear someone say this, grace and do these things. Like, yeah, there's grace and here's a list of things that you need to be doing. Or you'll know you're being peddled legalism if you hear someone say grace, but don't do those things. You see, the gospel is grace, period. Grace needs no additions nor subtractions. It's good enough. So anytime you hear grace and do these things or grace, but don't do these things, you're being peddled legalism. As it pertains to the Judaizers in Paul's day, what were they hearing? They were hearing a message of grace and be circumcised. Or for that matter, grace, but don't eat pork. Remain kosher. In today's Christianity, you'll hear legalism fit the same template. Grace and tithing. Or grace, but don't enjoy drinking a beer. You'll hear that. It's, it's legalism. Now, what makes legalism such an affront to the gospel, the gospel of grace, period, is that in each of these two dynamics, the power of grace and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit end up becoming minimalized, minimized by placing instead an undue emphasis on either the things you do or the things you refrain from doing for God, either for salvation or for continued sanctification. And subsequently, if you adopt a grace and or a grace but mentality, because it attacks grace and your dependency of the Spirit, it also undermines the basis of joy. It's why legalistic people are often miserable. Though Paul, Peter, and the other apostles completely reject the grace and and the grace but gospel distortions that were being promoted by these Judaizers. You can read Acts chapter 15. It's, It's called the Jerusalem Council. They made it absolutely clear that salvation and sanctification manifests from God's grace found through faith in Jesus alone. No additions, no subtractions. That said, like the legalists today, the Judaizers in Paul's day, though the church was clear, the church leadership was clear, these Judaizers refused to relent. In actuality, the Apostle Paul will spend more time in his epistles, all these letters that he he writes, combating this particular heresy than virtually any other concept in the New Testament writings. The Judaizers... They proved to be a constant and consistent thorn in Paul's side. He'd go and plant a church, get it established, leave, and who would come behind? These Judaizers saying, oh, what Paul was saying was great. The grace of God. That's true. But what he failed to tell you is that it's the amazing grace of God, and here's this list. Or, it's, or but don't do these things. Like they were coming behind with this whole, this whole thing, and it would seem from the context of chapter 3, that Paul had already given a warning to the Philippian church that these very Judaizers would be coming on the horizon. He says, look at it again, 
Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. In the Greek, this word translated beware. It means so much more than simply perceiving, or for that matter, like possessing discernment. The idea of the word implies an inherent and active cautiousness. For example, if you were to come across a sign, you're out hunting, and you come across a sign, you enter someone's property, and there it is, nailed to a tree. Beware of booby traps. Like, not only would this immediately heighten your sense of awareness, right? But it would alert you to a very real and tangible hazard potentially along your path, right? If you see, beware of booby traps, you're going to stop and probably not even go that direction. It's not worth it. Since Paul knew that legalism fundamentally undermined grace and the importance of your dependency on the Spirit, all the while robbing you of joy, he commands that we be on guard to anyone that would preach these things. You don't tell someone to beware of something that doesn't present a real and present danger. See, if the gospel, if the gospel is grace and the things you do for God, or grace but the sacrifices you make, Our ability then to possess joy is severely affected because it places an undue emphasis on your performance and involvement. How can you have joy if if you're never actually sure you're being good enough or you're living up to it? (laughs) Paul, he mixes no words here. Like He comes out throwing down. Look, he, he says, he calls these legalists, first word, he calls them dogs. Now, in the first century, using the term dog had a much different connotation than it does today. Like, dogs were not domesticated, and they were far from cute and cuddly. Instead, a dog was a societal nuisance. Dogs were pests. Today, if you travel in the third world, you'll know this. Dogs. Dogs often run around in packs. They're troublemakers. They tend to be quarrelsome. You see, in using this term, Paul is describing for us the fundamental character and nature of these legalists. We and the Philippian believers were to beware of. (laughs) Isn't it true that legalists, they tend to run around with other legalists. They are often argumentative, and they love to stir up trouble wherever they go. Paul then continues after kind of relaying their character by defining their activity. He calls them evil workers. Literally, he's saying their works were evil or of a bad nature. Though on the surface, what these men were doing may have appeared to be noble, even godly. It was the motivation, the driving factor behind their works that Paul says isn't good. He calls it evil. Now, that's a provocative thought. Think about it. And this is a warning for all of us. If you're engaged in a work, a service, a ministry, and the motivation behind that kindness is that you're hoping through it you will earn or at least maintain more of God's favor, what Paul is saying is he's saying not only is that, is that failing because it's grace, period, 
but that work is then considered by God not even to be good, but to be evil. Finally, Paul hones in his warning by saying, beware of the mutilation. Now, those, Though this gets lost in translation, in the Greek, Paul is employing kind of a bit of a, a play on words that, mind you, would have been absolutely 100% offensive to anyone that was Jewish, especially the Judaizers. While these men saying, you, you're saved by grace and being circumcised, these men taking pride in their circumcision, Paul then, he calls them dogs. He says, your works are evil. And then he says, what you think is circumcision, well, it's literally, it's a hacking off, a mutilation. That's what he's saying. Seeing circumcision as a physical work in their flesh aimed at pleasing God. And using this term, this loaded word mutilation, Paul is calling their work something that's grotesque and unsightly. He's calling it a perversion. Let me read the way this should be translated. <laughs> Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of anyone who wants to hack it off. Those are Paul's words, not mine. Then he says in verse 3, look at it. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now just pause. There's a lot there. In a better translation from Greek into English, you can actually hear Paul's intentional slight. One translation has it, has it written like this. Beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision. He's drawing a contrast. Now, understandably, this phrase, we are the circumcision, is totally, totally bizarre. Like, it's a strange phrase. Now, <clears throat> from the larger flow of the text, keep in mind, Paul is seeking to contrast what results when we seek to please God in our flesh, versus what occurs when we become pleasing to God through an internal work of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the macro understanding of what he's, of what he's getting at. Now, to explain the particulars here, I'm going to use an example. And I need you to note that I'm not trying to be funny, and I'm not trying to make light of a very serious psychological issue, but the analogy is just too perfect to avoid. Here goes. Bruce Jenner genuinely believes himself to be a woman. So much so that he's grown out his hair, taken hormone treatments, had plastic surgery to give himself breasts, gone under the knife to create more feminine facial structures, changed his legal name to Caitlin and gender classification on his ID, now dresses exclusively like a woman, and has exchanged male for female plumbing. And yet, if I may be bold enough to say, the truth is that none of these behavioral or physical modifications have changed the reality that Caitlyn Jenner's internal constitution remains male. Acting like a woman, changing your personal pronoun to she, 
mutilating yourself so that you now possess the female anatomy does not change the fact you still possess a Y chromosome and therefore will be always genetically and biologically male. Sadly, if you research gender dysphoria, which is a real thing, and transgenderism, you'll find study after study after study, studies done by John Hopkins University that demonstrate how reassignment surgeries not only fail to effectively alleviate the underlying psychological issue, the psychosis, but in the end, create much more severe problems for the individual. Now, here's my point, and follow me. Behavioral or physical modifications can never and will never change a person's internal constitution. It defies what is normal and what is natural, what we see tangibly. Friend, you can get down on all fours and act like a dog, but that will never make you a dog. I mean, you could be committed to it. It won't make you a dog any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car, or consuming a copious amount of cookies means you're the cookie monster. You see, this is the point that Paul is making in comparing the mutilation with the circumcision. People who focus on their works in the attempts of changing their internal constitution in order to please God end up creating a pseudo-moralism that God finds to be perverse. Let me apply it this way. Acting like Jesus is not how a person becomes Christ-like. You see, legalism says that. You see, legalism demands things to do or refrain from doing in the flesh in order to be more like Christ. And yet, sadly, that approach is about as successful as Bruce Jenner becoming a woman. Sure, on the surface, there is a persona of godliness in the same way that Caitlin physically looks like a lady. But the more time you spend around a legalist, the more off things become. Dude. So never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. Love put me wise to her love in disguise. She had the body of a Venus. Lord, imagine my surprise. Dude looks like a lady. Yes, that was Aerosmith. The truth is that seeking to become like Christ by acting like Christ or what I, what, I, what I would call the WWJD heresy? What would Jesus do? Well, I know what he would do. That doesn't mean I can do it. If I could do it, then I would need Jesus. What would Jesus do? That's not even relevant. I need Jesus in me to do what Jesus does. It's not me. I can't do a thing. And if you know me, you'll say Amen. I need Jesus. I don't need to emulate Jesus. You see, when a legalist claims that becoming like Christ occurs when you act like Christ, 
all that's yielded is a warped, contorted, mutilated version of what Jesus is actually like. Sadly, Jesus ends up being so often misrepresented by people who are trying their God-honest best to be like him. Because I can't be like Jesus, apart from Jesus acting like Jesus. Understand, real behavioral modification can only occur, it can only take place when a natural change first occurs inside of you in a person's internal constitution. This is why in order to be godly, it's not go out and be godly. It's undergo a genuine internal transformation where God indwells you and then begins to work out of you. Physical circumcision or what I do plays zero part, zero role in the process. It's a work of God in me working through me. In the Bible, we call it regeneration or rebirth to be born again, which only occurs not through a work of me, but when Jesus indwells my life through his spirit. Think about it. If Bruce Jenner, many years ago, had been given the option to have his core internal genetics changed from male to female so that his physical transformation would happen naturally and without all of the grueling surgeries, you can absolutely believe he would have jumped at the opportunity. How sad it is then when legalists cut themselves. They cut this out and they cut that off. All in the attempts to make themselves into the very thing Jesus wants to make them naturally. Mutilation versus circumcision. While the Judaizers were seeking to please God through physical circumcision, all that was yielded was a mutilation. And yet in contrast, by saying, we are the circumcision, Paul is instead pointing to what? An internal work of the Spirit, which does what? It allows us to, as Paul says, worship God. That word worship, it, it was the role of the priests. We can worship God, and we can rejoice, where? In Christ Jesus, and the work that he did, eliminating any need to possess a confidence in the flesh. Verse four, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss, for Christ. For anyone who is being tempted to fall into the trap of basing their standing with God on their works, thereby possessing a confidence in the flesh, Paul points out that if anyone could have done it and been successful, he was the prime candidate. As it pertains to this, this list of qualifications, notice that Paul begins by emphasizing four characteristics that he possessed simply by birth. These were things that it would have been impossible for any Gentile to have ever possessed. In accordance with Leviticus 12.3, Paul says first that he was circumcised the eighth day. What he means by this is that he possessed the correct spiritual heritage, 
Not only had he been circumcised, he had been circumcised according to the way the law mandated it. Two, Paul says that he was of the stock of Israel. What he means by this is that in addition to possessing a spiritual heritage of circumcision, as then being a direct descendant of Jacob, Israel, and therefore Abraham, Paul also held a particular birthright. Three, he says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Unlike all the other tribes who rebelled against God, the descendants of Benjamin, they did something wise. They were the one tribe that aligned themselves with the tribe of Judah. In actuality, the city of Jerusalem was within Benjamin's original borders. Fourth, Paul sums it all up by just saying, man, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, to understand that phrase, you got to have a little context. In the first century, there was a divide within Jewish culture. You had a group known as Hellenistic Jews. That means ethnically they're Jewish, but culturally they were Greek. They adopted the culture around them. In contrast, the second group was Hebraic Jews. They rejected Greek culture, ethnically Hebrew, but they retained cultural Hebrewism uh, instead of Greek. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, culturally, I I remain pure. He possessed the right heritage, the right birthright, the right credentials, and he was pure. And then he continues by now listing things that he had achieved. Look at them. As it pertained to the law, Paul says he was a Pharisee. And and what he means by that is that the Pharisees being this, this elite religious sect of Judaism, a group, mind you, that was dedicated, absolutely dedicated to keeping all of the law, even in the smallest of details. Basically, Paul's saying, considering the law, I was a Pharisee. Man, I was in an exclusive club. None of you would have ever qualified. We obeyed the law. We were fundamentalists. We obeyed it all strictly. And then he says, as it pertained to, to, to religious zeal, he persecuted the church. <laughs> That's, it's an interesting admission when you're writing a letter to the church. But what he means is that in his former days, he wasn't just religious in an intellectual sense. His intellectual beliefs carried to to tangible actions. He was a zealot. He carried forth what he genuinely believed, willing to do whatever was required. Thirdly, he says in regards to his righteousness, as determined by one's obedience to the law, in much the same way, interestingly enough, as the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? And Jesus says, you know, he's talking to him about the law, and he says, have you obeyed the law? He's like, I've obeyed all of the law. Like, I'm blameless when it comes to obeying the law. And and he genuinely believed he was. And so Jesus says, well, okay, then sell everything you have and come follow me, revealing to him what his idol was, materialism, his self-righteousness. In the same way, Paul he says, man, concerning rights, I was blameless. On a side note, I, and I could share this with you another day, I actually think Paul was the rich young ruler. Um, and I think this is kind of a play back to that. The only two people who have ever called themselves blameless. Paul and the rich young ruler, I think they're the same person. You see, if anyone could claim righteousness through the law, if anyone could stand before God and said, I am right, Paul It could have been him. And yet, in light of all these things, what does he say? He closes this up. He says, but but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. What he's saying 
is that all of these things that many would have perceived to have been an asset, things the Judaizers would have pointed to as being beneficial, Paul claims that they were in actuality a liability. It was these very things that his flesh found confidence in that had kept him from Christ for so many years. When Jesus knocks him off his, his donkey on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it's hard to kick against the goads. Meaning, you're resisting what you know to be true. And why? Verse 8, and yet indeed, I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, if you're, if you're just reading through the chapter, you read verse 7, you read verse 8, doesn't they kind of, don't they kind of seem oddly repetitive? Like he's just, he's kind of repeating. It's a little redundant even. And yet, if you look more closely at verses 7 and 8, what makes them different, Paul is saying something, really it's, it's radical. The point he's articulating. In verse 7, as Paul is coming off this incredible list, citing his religious pedigree and all of his achievements, he says, look at it again, these I have counted loss for Christ. Do you notice verse 7, this statement is in the past tense. You see, there was a singular instance in Paul's past where a genuine accounting occurred. A moment in his life when Paul was forced to examine his religious works in light of the person of Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Paul, he made a decision, right? He chose to reject his self-righteousness, count all of these religious works to be lost, humble himself, and accept the work that Jesus did on his behalf. And yet, while well, verse 7 is an accounting that occurred in the past, Verse 8, yes, presents the same idea, but notice it's in the present tense. You see, 30 years after his original conversion, the Apostle Paul was still making a decision. He was still counting. He was still rejecting his sufficiency for that of Christ Jesus. Paul was still weighing things even in context to the fact that over those 30 years, he'd literally lost everything. But he still counted it as a loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus. What things did Paul lose the moment he made a decision to follow Jesus? What was the evaluation, the cost? He lost his moral standing. He lost his identity in Judaism. He lost his status and his religious community. He lost his power and his influence. As a Pharisee, you had to be married, which means Paul lost his wife because we don't have a mention of her. He lost his family. He lost all of his friends. He lost his job. He lost his 401k, his source of income. He lost his home. He doesn't even go back. Arriving in Damascus, Paul has literally lost absolutely everything, and yet, because of the life he had received in Jesus, Paul was not only at peace with that decision, but he's saying in verse 8, I would be willing to make that decision over and over and over again. 
In light of all that Jesus had given him, Paul counted his former religious works and life as rubbish. And that's really a polite word. Not so polite in the Greek. This word, it literally means the excrement of animals. That's what the word rubbish is. The King James does a little bit better job in the translation. Instead of rubbish, they just translate it as dung. In the context of Jesus and all that he had gained when he finally surrendered, all of those things that had dominated his former life, his pedigree, his religious works and acumen, his achievements, he decided at the end, in comparison to Jesus, all of that, it was dung. It was poo. It was that lump of stuff in the woods you avoid. There's a better word I won't use. It was worthless to Paul and completely detestable. That's what he's saying. And he continues. That I might gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is telling these Philippians to beware of those who would peddle legalism. Because Paul knew all too well that such an outlook, it was not only worthless, but it would rob you of joy that the life found in Jesus could only provide. Please, keep in mind the larger implication of what Paul is saying. He's saying your position before God is either found in one of two ways. You only have one of two options. You can either present yourself before God and your ability to be good enough. Mind you, Paul has already listed and, and, and stated, I was blameless, and I wouldn't dare do it. But you can. Go for it. Or you can stand before God in Jesus. It can either be on the basis of your work or on the basis of his work. Paul. Paul was willing to reject his ability, reject his moralism, his religious works, all for the opportunity to gain Christ. And he says that there's two things that he gained. Look at it. Paul wanted to gain Christ and that he could be found in Christ. See, Paul rightly understood that his right standing before God was not found in his ability to obey the law or rules, regulations. It was found in an identity given in Jesus. See, Paul's works matter not. His ability to be good enough matter not. Paul had come to see his right position before God, what we call righteousness, as being only possible, how? He says, through faith in Christ. Paul realized that if he rejected his work by placing the full confidence in the work of Jesus, the righteousness then of Christ Jesus would be attributed to his account. That, friend, is the good news. You see, when God looked down and viewed Paul, he saw Jesus. Therefore, making him totally righteous, and I hope you understand, that's how you're righteous today. When God looks down and sees you, he doesn't see you. You've been covered by the blood, by a sacrifice, by a person. He's covering you. So when 
when God sees you, he sees Jesus, which is why you're righteous. Because Jesus is righteous. And that righteousness is attributed to me, independent of me, simply because he loves me. Friend, if the basis of your righteousness is what you do for God, I want you to know this morning, you are a legalist. If you've bought into the lie that the gospel of grace and the things you do for God, or grace but the sacrifices you make to demonstrate your worthiness are important, you need to know that God sees these things as evil, a mutilated version of a work he wants to accomplish in you, and as Paul concludes, absolutely rubbish. Whether you realize it or not, if this is you, you've departed from God's grace, the gospel, and the power of the Spirit by placing your confidence instead in you and your ability. And in all likelihood, you're totally miserable and lack joy. However, if your righteousness is based in what Jesus has done for you, if it's not your works but his, if you've counted all as loss and placed your confidence in the Spirit's ability to transform you from the inside out, it's not your flesh or your ability at all. Not only, friend, do you understand the gospel and you've experienced grace, but there's absolutely no reason your life shouldn't be filled with unspeakable joy, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. And we'll kind of close with this. But he says he also wanted to gain Christ and that he may know him. Paul wanted to be found in Christ, but he wanted to know Christ. <laughs> there is a difference, isn't there? between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Like, there's a major difference. You see, what changed Paul's life was not knowing more about Jesus. What changed Paul's life was the moment he experienced God's grace when he was afforded the chance to have a relationship with Jesus. Think about it. How does a person receive God's grace? Well, the Bible says you enter into a relationship with Jesus. That's how you've received God's grace. It's a relationship with Jesus. And then how does a person grow in God's grace? Well, your relationship with Jesus then naturally deepens as you hang out with Christ. And, and how is a person transformed by God's grace? Well, that relationship with Jesus that's now growing and deepening is beginning to change now your internal desires, therefore impacting your particular behaviors. You always become like the people you hang out with. We're impressionable. <laughs> Trust me, though. Jesus won't become like you. Spending time with Jesus is how you become more like him. Paul experienced God's grace and that it afforded him the opportunity to possess a relationship with Jesus, something the law never afforded him. And it was this relationship, not his works or his worthiness, that liberated Paul, that freed him. It freed him from a former life. It liberated him from the guilt of past mistakes. It presently filled his life with meaning and purpose. But Paul was never satisfied. He let go of what was behind, and his eyes were always set to what was ahead. And it's that idea that he continues to articulate in the remainder of chapter 3 which we'll look at next Sunday. So Father, thank you for your word.